Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 14th of December, Dan Hater taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Dan takes us through the book of Revelation. Dan is one of the leaders at Life Church Peterborough and also helps run Relational Missions Leadership Training Programme. Let's take a listen to the session. It's, it's a real privilege and a, and a joy to be here. Um, I'll just say a, a few words of introduction about myself so you have some idea of who's talking to you. So as you've heard, my name's Dan. I'm uh, married to Bex and we've got a little girl called Zoe. And so we currently live in Peterborough. We've been there for the last year and a few months. And uh, so I'm part of the, the leadership team, team there. Uh, but before that, uh, we were in London, part of Revelation Church in London, where actually Emma and, uh, and Tom used to be part of that as well. Um, so it's great to see to see a handful of familiar, familiar faces around the room um, is somehow linked to, to Revelation Church, whether that's that they've been part of it or our parents of someone who we're very good friends with. Uh, so I, I love the fact that it's kind of a bit of a small world. So even though most of you will never have seen my face before, um, there are still a number of people that I do recognise in the room, which is, which is brilliant. Um, another thing that I, I do, so part of, part of my job is to help serve the church in Peterborough. Part of my job is to help serve um, relational mission by helping to lead uh, the lead course which is basically a two-year leadership training program um, uh, which again so I suppose similar-ish to to what you guys um, to what you guys do here it's two-year leadership training program so we do a lot of theology we go through the, the whole bible over the space of two years so I'm a big fan of, uh, of what you've been doing the idea of just going through the whole of scripture um, and so that's kind of part of what I, what I do with my life. But um, hopefully you will get a sense of the fact that I'm very, very excited about the book of Revelation over today. And um, it's, I don't know if you're supposed to have favourite books of the Bible, but if you are supposed to, then Revelation is probably my favourite book of the Bible. Uh, and, but I, I, I will understand that for a lot of you, you're probably coming from perhaps different backgrounds in terms of Christianity. And, and the two topics that we're looking at today, Revelation, in terms of book of the Bible we're looking at, and then the more systematic theology, the topic we're going to move on to a little bit later, eschatology, which means study of the end times. I recognise that depending on the church background you've come from, you may have experienced two slightly different approaches to it. So you may not necessarily fall into a particular category yourself, but you may have experienced this particular approach. So I think the book of Revelation and the topic of the end times, so they're not necessarily interchangeable as we'll see, because Revelation, actually a lot of Revelation is not primarily about what happens right at the end of time, but a lot of it is. But the book of Revelation and the end times, I think you tend to often get two extreme reactions that go on. And it'd just be interesting to perhaps with a bit of a show of hands, see what your experience has been in terms of your Christian upbringing or the, or the church background that, you, that you've come from. One of those extremes is obsession. And obsession's a good thing, okay? So I am obsessed about the book of Revelation. I am obsessed about the end times. But there's a, a strange kind of obsession that can happen when it comes to Revelation and the end times. And this usually involves predicting the exact minute of Christ's return. 
It's usually at like, I don't know, 9 a.m. just after breakfast on the 7th of January 2023. Or coming up with charts that involve lots of political figures. And for some reason, the Russians and the U.S. are always involved in these kind of things. So that's, that's one extreme where there's... Um, I think maybe the word speculation might actually be better than obsession. It's a speculative kind of obsession. I, think I, just, I can't stop thinking about this. I've got charts on my walls in my bedroom, and no one particularly wants to hang out with me because I just, I'm a bit strange to be around. That's one extreme. I'm, I'm painting the, the extreme. So when I say show of hands for who's in that camp, then I'm not saying that the churches that you've been part of are quite like that. But that can be the caricature. The other end, which would probably be the danger that the churches that I've been part of in would be neglect. Where you say, can't understand Revelation. To be honest, don't really understand all the ins and outs of the end times. And as long as I go to be with Jesus when I die, I'm happy. I can just, I might touch Revelation with a barge pole from time to time, but I'm not going to spend much time there. And I think both of those extremes can be unhealthy. And I think actually we need a healthy obsession with the book of Revelation and a healthy um, obsession with the end times. Just as a bit of a straw poll show of hands, so you're not saying that you yourself fit into either of these categories, but who would say in terms of their experience of Christianity and church has been more on the um, perhaps obsessive speculation side more when it comes to revelation? Don't feel like you're... No? Okay. <laughs> Either that or no one wants to admit that that's the case. Who would say that the danger perhaps is that they just think, I, I, I think I just don't understand the book of Revelation and I get a bit confused by it all? Okay, so I would have imagined that would probably be major, mainly the case. If you go to certain parts of the world, certain parts of the country, certain groups of churches, it may be that we find the complete opposite. And all they ever preach on is Revelation, but it's always done in a, I don't know, quite a speculative kind of way. Yeah? Yeah, that's, that's true. It isn't. Yeah. So people, you know, that's my problem. Yeah. It's not taught yeah. anywhere Absolutely. So there, there can be a neg- so there can be a neglect personally, but there can there can also sometimes be a neglect in terms of teaching. Um, so that I think that's true, and I think part of the reason for that is, I think people get very confused by the Book of Revelation, and it is to a certain extent, it is a confusing book. Okay, it's the to be if you're going to use the word weird, it's the weirdest book we have in the Bible. And it's the most foreign, alien kind of writing to the kind of writing that we're used to. And so for, for I think, quite wholesome, godly reasons, very often people shy away from it because they think, well, we don't want to end up being obsessed with something that we don't actually understand properly. And so I do think there's a real need for teaching into this. And so hopefully what I can convince you of today, even if you don't go away having understood the whole of the book of Revelation is to go away thinking, actually, this is worth doing some thinking about. Because I think it is, I think we neglect it at our peril. It is a book that the church needs. And I think nowadays, the kind of society and culture that we're increasingly living in, I think the church needs it more than ever. Um, So hopefully I'll be able to convince you of that. But what we're going to do is just a few introductory matters. There'll be various points where I get you to do some discussing. Also, the way I like to teach is, and thank you for doing that, is basically if people just want to at any point put their hand up, ask a question. If we're running massively behind, I might just have to ignore you from time to time, but I'm happy for questions to come at any point, really. So I I enjoy that quite interactive style of teaching. But what we're going to do is just a little bit of introductory stuff, and then we're going to essentially whiz through the whole of Revelation together. And hopefully we'll get that done in the first kind of half of, t- of um, this morning. And then in the second half, we'll get to look at 
Uh, more generally, the idea of the end times, return of Christ, what happens when you die and so on. Does that sound good? Yeah. Great. Glad you're with me. So if we're looking at how we actually read the book of Revelation, a few helpful things to ask. So first question would be actually, what's our general approach to the book? Okay, so if you, if you pick up a novel, you know that you're reading a novel, therefore you're going to read it in a particular way. If you pick up a newspaper, you know that you're reading a newspaper and you know that it will be more or less factual depending on which newspaper you pick up. No, no particular ones in, explicitly in mind there. Same is true with Revelation. We need to know how is it that we approach the book as a whole. Okay, And so broadly speaking, you'll find that Everyone who reads this book falls into four general camps, four different ways. And it's not that they're completely mutually exclusive, but there are, broadly speaking, four general ways you can approach the book of Revelation. And I'm going to argue that a combination of two of them is, I think, the best way of approaching it. So I'm going to run through this quickly because some some of these words are a bit technical. The first of those views is what's called the preterist view. Basically just a fancy word for saying that most of what happens in Revelation, or most of what Revelation is describing, is events and things that would have happened in the first century. In other words, events that the early church would have been able to understand when it was written to them. Okay? Now, when you, very often when people use the, the idea of a preterist reading of Revelation, what that sometimes means is that basically Revelation describes all the events that happened up until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I think you did church history last time, so I imagine you probably looked at destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so some people who hold to a preterist reading of Revelation wouldn't just say that most of these events happened in the first century and would be understood by first century people, but they would say that pretty much the whole book is actually not so much talking about Jesus returning at the end of time, but is symbolically talking about the events that led to the destruction of the temple. Now, I don't go there, but some very godly, solid evangelical people would. So it's not, it's not a strange way of reading Revelation. Okay? So if you ever, ever hear that, that actually is a way that a lot of people would read the book. Um, and it's not an odd way of reading it. I'll explain why I broadly would fall into the camp that says, I think that it's mostly talking about stuff that the early church would have been able to understand. But I don't think that it's just talking about destruction of Jerusalem. I think there's more going on than that. But that's preterist view. The historicist view is basically, the, it's kind of the other, the other extreme. When you stand here in the 21st century and you say, I can look through the last 2,000 years and Revelation basically gives me a map of where we've gone so far. And I suppose implied in that is there's a map for what's still to come. But the historicist view says you can see particular events in history represented in Revelation. So they might say, oh, well, you can, you can see the fall of the Berlin Wall. Some people may interpret certain parts of it like that. Some people may say you see the First and the Second World Wars represented here. So that's a historicist view where they're saying you look through history and you can see particular things that are predicted that have already happened. And presumably there's more still to come. So that's historicist view. Futurist view is the next one. To be honest, probably the most common view in terms of popular conceptions of Revelation is Revelation is pretty much only talking about what happens just before Jesus returns. And so if you take a purely futurist view, you would say that with very few exceptions, there are no prophecies in Revelation that have yet been fulfilled and that they're all talking about what happens just before Jesus returns. I think that is probably the predominant popular 
view of, particularly in uh, perhaps a more American Christianity with books like the Left Behind series. Anyone ever come across those? Yeah, very kind of futurist view of Revelation. We are waiting for Revelation to even start being fulfilled, let alone come to its completion. And then finally, you've got the idealist view, which is the idea that Revelation is not necessarily talking about any specific events, but is giving us an overarching symbolic view of the struggle between good and evil and the fact that ultimately God wins and God triumphs. Okay, does that make sense? Happy with those four different views? I think there are pros and cons to each view. So just to give you a few examples, I think if you, if you go for a preterist view, whether it's correct or not, a danger sometimes can be that you think, well, how on earth is Revelation relevant to today? If all it's talking about is first century stuff, how can it be relevant to today? If you go for a futurist view, for example, what a pro, an advantage of that view could be, well, actually, there's a, there can be a healthy obsession with the fact we want Jesus to come back, which, by the way, is something that the early church was obsessed about. So it's a good thing to be obsessed about that. A disadvantage could be, actually, you can end up with some very, very speculative readings. Because, oddly enough, I think for the historicist and futurist view, oddly enough, everyone tends to interpret Revelation as starting to be fulfilled at their moment in history. And who ends up being right? Was it in the 15th century where they thought the end, of the, t- the end of the world was happening then? Was it in the 18th century where a whole bunch of people thought the end of the world was happening? Is it now where people start predicting that Jesus will return in two years' time after breakfast on Saturday the 7th of May? It's very hard to figure out whether you've actually got it right with that view. Now, maybe just, maybe just one or two minutes in your groups, just to get you thinking a little bit, which of those four views would you say you have, if, if you've had any kind of interaction with Revelation, which of those would you say that one fits in with the way I've generally experienced Revelation being taught or read? Yeah, so just a couple of minutes, quick discussion in your groups. Okay, should we um, gather back together? We've, uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover. I mean, especially if you go for a futurist or a historicist view, there's 2,000 plus years worth of history. Luckily, <laughs> I don't go for one of those, so there's slightly less ground to cover than you, uh, than you might expect if we were going for mapping out the whole of history and revelation. But just a, a quick show of hands, who would say that a broadly preterist view would be what they've mainly been exposed to? So broad, broadly preterist, in other words, first century, understandable to the early church, not so much talking about future. Okay, a few. What about historicist? We can map stuff that's gone on in history. Okay, handful. Futurist? I suspected that would probably be the dominant one. And then idealist? Okay, great. So there's a a bit of a spread, but I think, as I suspected, futurist is probably the main one. Right, let me put my cards on the table, because I think with a book like Revelation, unless you've got weeks to actually all together work through it bit by bit and form our understanding of how we should approach it, I think it's important to be clear from the outset how we're going to actually read the book. The way I would interpret it, and I can explain reasons as we go, is I would mainly fall into the preterist camp. Now, there are a few reasons for that, which we'll, we'll come on to. One of the reasons is, Revelation is, is many things. As we'll see, it's a prophecy, which means it will obviously be talking about the future, but it's also a letter that was written to seven churches in the first century. And if you're writing a letter to seven churches and they're meant, and you're writing letters that they are meant to respond to, that's quite clear, okay? So this is not just a, I don't know, a, some kind of uh, theoretical treatise. This is something that's sent to real life churches and they have a response to this letter that they need to have. It needs to be able to un- be understood by them. 
Another reason is the style of writing that it's written in would have been actually quite common in the first century, and it was very, it was quite common to use that style of writing to symbolise things that were going on in the world at the time. So there's a few reasons why I predominantly go for a preterist view. I think that it is mainly talking about things that the early church would have been seeing as on their doorstep and had a responsibility before God to respond to in a particular way. That said, I do think it also talks about long-term future things. So I think you cannot read the last few chapters of Revelation, in my view, and think this is just a, a symbolic description of the destruction of Jerusalem and the fact that the church is victorious. I don't think that you can... I think there's long-term future stuff going on as well. Yeah? I've heard it argued that it's actually all for them. Uh, yep. You could argue that it's actually because it is two seven churches, yep. but also, and it's talking about their period, but that period of early church history can be kind of seen in yep. the rest of church history. Yeah. And it yep. still points to Yes, so absolutely. So that's a good point to make. So this, this doesn't mean that it's not relevant to us. It just means that what I think, if it's describing an event... And I think there are actual events that are described in Revelation. I think we're safer thinking which, which event that the early church would have been able to experience and see is this likely talking about. But I think because it is talking about stuff that the early church would have been able to see and understand, I think it actually makes it more relevant to us than less. Because I think if we're speculating what events through history or perhaps in 200 years time are being referred to, at the end of the day, it's very hard to root your life and your understanding in that. Whereas if you're saying, here is how the early church were called to respond to this kind of event, how does that apply in our life? And I think that's what we do with a lot of the New Testament. We do that with Paul's letters. We say, what is it, what's the historical context that Paul was writing this in? How were the early church meant to respond? How does that then apply to us? So absolutely, I think it, I, nothing of what I'm saying here means that Revelation is irrelevant. If anything, it's even more relevant. I also have a little bit of a mix of idealistic, idealist view in there. Not because I just think it's a symbolic struggle of, of good and evil, but because I think that sometimes we can try too hard to fit every single symbol in Revelation with an actual event that happened in the first century or in the 18th or whatever. And I think sometimes there are general symbols that express general realities so I think there are symbols that express famine, for example, in Revelation. I don't know whether John, who's writing this, had a specific famine in mind when he wrote that. I think he's trying to talk to the early church about things that go on in the church age that they will end up encountering. But I do also think there are very real specific things that are referred to. Does that make sense? So broadly, I will assume that the early church would have been able to understand this. And I'm going to also assume that it is intensely relevant to us in the 21st century but it's not relevant to us because we can create some kind of time map. It's relevant to us because we actually have the, we need to have the same kind of response to the kind of dangers that the early church were facing in our culture as well. Does that make sense? Yes. yes? Question. Go for it. How do you contrast that with things like the Old Testament prophecy, which yep. some of which very clearly were not going to be fulfilled within the time mm. of the writing of them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you could say you you could say a similar thing. Um, I think the I think the, the the reason I'm I'm so keen to to root Revelation in the first century is because it's a it's a it's very much a letter or a, a writing that demands a response from its hearers, and so I think there's um, 
in a sense, as with Old Testament prophecy, there is that mix. Predominantly, Old Testament prophecy is calling God's people to respond in a particular way in the moment. But that doesn't stop there being sections of Old Testament prophecy which are clearly talking about the long-term future. So, I mean, you take the last few chapters of Daniel, those are, that's talking about events which, well, depending on which parts of it you read, some events which are two or three hundred years after the original readers, some events which are perhaps a few thousand years after the original readers. So the fact that it talks about the long-distance future doesn't mean that it's not relevant. But I'm just saying the bulk of it is written in such a way as to warn. It's warning the early church about challenges and trials that are about to face them that they need to respond to. And it's motivating them to respond to them in part by pointing to the long-distance future. Does that make sense? Yeah? Hopefully we'll see how that works as we go through. But a few really quick other introductory things that I'll whiz through and then we'll get into the, uh, to Revelation itself. What kind of a book is Revelation? I think you could say three different kinds of, of writing all merged into one. First of all, it's what we might call an apocalypse. By the way, apocalypse doesn't mean the end of the world. It means an unveiling or a revealing. So when it says the revelation of Jesus Christ at the beginning of the book, in Greek, that's the apocalypse, apocalypsis of Jesus. So this book is an unveiling. And in other words, what it does is it strips the curtains back and it shows us heaven's perspective on things. And you can get a bit of a sense of how this kind of writing feels like by reading Daniel 7 to 12, amongst other writings. But it would have been a very common kind of writing for Jewish, um, for Jewish people at the time that it was written. And for us, it just seems very alien. So it's very symbolic. It often uses a lot of language that you think, what on earth does that mean? But would have actually made quite a lot of sense in the first century. Perhaps in the same way that a, if in, I don't know, 500, 600 years time, someone looks at a political cartoon based on the most recent general election, they might struggle to understand it in the same way that we quite easily understand it because we know what's going on in the, in the world at that point. Make sense? So it's an apocalypse, it's an unveiling, and it's a kind of writing that is meant to show you heaven's perspective on earthly realities. It's also a prophecy. So it says in, in chapter 1, verse 3, that it is a prophecy, which means that Jesus, the risen Jesus, is addressing his church, is addressing his people through this book. That's what prophecy does. It's God speaking to his people, and there's a call to action. That's really important. This is a book that demands a response, and there's a prediction of the future. That's a number of things that prophecy, prophecy does. It demands a response. It speaks to God's people. It speaks God's words to God's people, and it also encourages and challenges them about the future. And then finally, and this is one of the main reasons why I think that we need to think, how would the early church have understood this, is it was a letter as well. It was originally written to seven actual churches in Asia Minor, which is broadly modern-day Turkey nowadays. And so we need to think, how is it that the church in the first century in Ephesus or in Smyrna or in Laodicea would have read not just the first two, um, the chapters two and three, which are the messages to them specifically, how would they have read the whole book? So those are broadly three things, I think, that Revelation fits into. Written by a guy called John. Traditionally, that would be John the Apostle. Or another tradition has that it would be a guy called John the Elder. Whatever the case, it was a guy called John, and I would tend to most likely think that it's John the Apostle rather than John the Elder. But at the end of the day, I don't think that makes a, mass, a major difference. Um, when was it written? Now, most books of the Bible, it doesn't really matter ultimately when they were written, because you know what, if, John, if, if Paul wrote letters to the Romans in the 50s or in the 60s, 
AD, by the way, not 1950s, 1960s, then it doesn't make a huge difference to how you interpret it. With Revelation, it can actually make sometimes a significant difference. But just to give you the options, there are two options, broadly, which are reasonable. The, most, the least likely in my view, but that a lot of people still hold, is that it's written just before 70 AD. Now, if you think it's written just before 70 AD, and there are reasons why people think that, then you will probably read a lot of it as talking into the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. And that's just normal. If you're writing about a crisis that is going to happen, and this is happening just before 70 AD, it really does make sense to read a lot of it as referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. So there are reasons for believing that. In my view, it's the least likely, but I don't want to make out as if it's just this strange view that no one holds. Actually, there are a lot of people who would hold that it's written just before 70 in my view, and most modern commentators would go with the idea that it's written in the 90s, which means Jerusalem's already been destroyed. And so at this point, what's the main threat that's facing the Christian church? Well, there are a number of them, but one of the big ones is that in the reign of the Emperor Domitian, who was the emperor at the time, things started hotting up a little bit, particularly in the part of the world that Revelation was written to in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And so the kind of crisis that the church is about to face is a bit different to the kind of crisis that they would have faced in the lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. At the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily change the way you read the book completely, but it can make a bit of a difference. I'll go with 90 AD, but it, is potentially, it could potentially have been written in the lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Everyone following so far? Okay, hopefully this will all, make, as we piece the book together, hopefully this will all slot into place. And then finally, just a few tips on how we go about reading uh, Revelation. So there's the general approach, which we've looked at, whether we go for preterist, historicist, futurist, symbolic. But then there's what are some tools that help us along the way? I think the most helpful tool is the Old Testament. It is absolutely soaked in Old Testament language. And John uses images from the Old Testament all the time. So the more you know the Old Testament, the easier Revelation is to understand. Okay, so all of the teaching you had last year on the Old Testament and so on, that will come in handy as you read a book like Revelation. And I love this quote by Peter Lightheart. He says, John, or he, he John, writes with scripture rather than about it. That's important. So it's, he's not always using the Old Testament symbolism um, in the same way that some of the other writers in the New Testament do, where they say, oh, this happened to fulfill this, this happened to fulfill this. John is using the Old Testament a bit more like um, a, a a palette that a painter has, lots of different colours. And he's saying, I'm going to paint this picture by and using Old Testament language. And so there are symbols that you can understand if you understand what it meant in the Old Testament. And he paints with Old Testament language to help communicate stuff to the church. Old Testament is hugely important. So get into the Old Testament because it's important in and of itself, but it will also massively help you understand the New Testament and particularly Revelation. Another thing is symbolism. Lots and lots of symbols in Revelation. If you've, if you've ever read it, you will know there's a heck of a lot of symbols. And what we need to make sure we do is we don't get the symbols confused with the reality. Otherwise, you end up with some slightly odd interpretations. So I do not think that there is literally going to be a seven-headed beast that comes out of the Mediterranean Sea at some point in the future. I think there's a symbolic aspect to Revelation that's trying to communicate something. Yep, Phil. That's a brave thing to say, don't yep. Sorry, the yes, I think, I, and I think, I, I think it's important. And the reason I think it's important is because when you read other 
writings that are not necessarily in the Bible because there's not that many of them, but other writings that are similar in style to Revelation, um, they are often they would have they would be interpreted by early Jewish um, readers and early Christian readers in a symbolic way. So rather than them thinking, oh, there is a literally a beast who is going to appear from the sea, they'd have thought, we know from Daniel, for example, that beasts represent empires. This must therefore be talking in some way about an empire rather than a literal animal. And to be honest, an empire, if, um, if you're talking about the Roman Empire, for example, that's actually quite a lot scarier than a literal animal coming out of the Mediterranean Sea. So the fact that it's symbolic doesn't actually make it any less scary. If anything, it sometimes makes it more scary. Because, I don't know, to a certain extent, I could deal with a big animal coming out of the Mediterranean Sea. You just, I don't know, shoot it, shoot a few missiles at it and kill it. If we're talking about a giant empire that is coming to oppress early Christians, that's a lot scarier suddenly. So in some senses, I want to demystify Revelation. On the other hand, I don't, I don't want to say it's less scary than we often think. I want to say it's sometimes it's more scary, but in a different way. And so it's important that we don't get the symbol mixed up with the reality. And you can look a little bit into what I've put here on the notes in terms of a guy called Vern Poitras that talks about layers of meaning in Revelation. I think for today, we don't need to worry too much about four layers of meaning, but re- recognize that there are symbols. Another thing is numbers. So this kind of fits within symbols, but numbers are really important. Now, I imagine a lot of us here don't like maths. Any, anyone actually a maths fan here? A few maths fans? I don't mind maths. I quite like, yeah, maths is cool. Okay, you guys will love Revelation. Um, those of us who don't, who don't like numbers and maths as much, we might have to struggle a little bit more but numbers were really important in these kind of writings so numbers symbolized things in jewish culture that in our culture they don't it's not like i don't know it's not like the number 10 or 7 in our culture necessarily symbolizes a particular reality whereas in revelation be on the lookout for numbers so numbers 4 7 and 12 often are used to refer to the idea of completeness or wholeness but in slightly different ways the number 12 is the number of god's people Okay, 12 tribes of Israel, 12, that's, that's very often what's being symbolized there. Also, and here's where math geeks are going to love it, look out for multiples and variations of these numbers. So if you get a square number, which is a number times itself, so we've got 144 is 12 times 12. A square number, a number times itself in Revelation, often means super duper completeness. So 144 means very complete. When you get to chapter 7 and you find that there are 144,000, it's like super duper 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 complete. Basically, I mean, that would be the, I know, the layman's way of putting what 144,000 refers to in Revelation. Another one is, okay, triangular numbers. Those of you who know maths might know about this. Those of you who don't, I'm not even going to bother explaining. Just trust me, 666 is what's called a triangular number. And in Revelation, triangular numbers are often used to refer to people in opposition to God. Okay? Now, if you are an uber-maths geek, you might be able to figure this out on your own when you're reading numbers in Revelation. If you're not, use a study Bible or a commentary. And they would often just say, oh, by the way, this is a square number and it denotes its completeness. Or, oh, this is a triangular number. It talks about opposition um, to God's people. And then finally, having said the Old Testament is probably the most important um, thing, I think... Very close is an approach to revelation needs to come with humility. Godly, clever, and gifted people have tackled this book throughout history. And actually on the essentials, a lot of the time they've agreed, but on a, on a number of the details, they've often disagreed. And so we do need to have humility as we approach this. And another way we can have humility is to say, actually, I know far less about this book than other people do, who, scholars who have spent their whole lives reading it. 
And um, in terms of books on Revelation that I'd recommend, we've got a sliding scale of technical to more straightforward. If you love the technical side, Greg Beale's commentary, which will set you back a lot of money, uh, it was about a thousand pages long. So G.K. Beale, he, uh, probably the most helpful single volume commentary on Revelation. Um, if you want something slightly less technical, but still, still takes a bit of a challenge, Ian Paul has um, written a commentary on Revelation, I think it was last year. That's a really helpful one. That's more like 400 pages than a thousand. And then, you know what, even if you like those two, get this book as well. It's out of print, but I think you can still find it secondhand on Amazon. John Hosier, The Lamb, The Beast, and The Devil is a really, really helpful introduction. And in fact, John Hosier's teaching on Revelation was the moment where the penny dropped for me in terms of thinking, ah, oh, I feel like I now get my head around what Revelation's actually talking about. So that's a really, really helpful book. Okay, we're all still awake, yes. all still alive. Okay. So let's talk a little bit now about the structure of Revelation. So... Revelation is very, very carefully structured. Okay? Some, I think at a first reading, particularly for the, uh, if it's not familiar to us, we might think, oh my goodness, what's this mess of symbols and images? When you read it a number of times and you read it carefully, you realise this is very carefully structured. And I think it makes a difference in our understanding of Revelation if we actually understand how the whole book fits together. So what we're now going to do is show how the whole book is structured and then we're going to jump into these different sections and explain how the different sections work. And hopefully what this does is it provides a bit of a skeleton. And this, to be honest, for me and understanding Revelation, this was the most helpful thing, was having a sense of the overall structure of the book which meant that as I was reading through it there, there would be a lot of details that I would not understand but I'd be able to think but I know broadly what part, what part of the overall structure this bit fits in. I have no idea what these grasshoppers are referring to, but I know that this particular part of Revelation as a whole is talking about this, therefore the grasshoppers somehow will fit into that. That for me was quite a helpful thing. So hopefully as we talk big picture, when you go back home and you decide, oh, I'm going to spend some time studying Revelation, hopefully it won't necessarily solve all of your questions, but it will help a lot in terms of understanding the book as a whole. And I think this is not the structure of Revelation. People debate about how exactly to structure it, but I think this is a really helpful one and a way of structuring it that the book itself gives us, which is to organize the whole book around four different visions. And the way that we know that there are broadly four overall visions in Revelation is that four times we get an expression that say, where John says, I was taken in the Spirit, or I went in the Spirit, or the Lord took me in the Spirit. And that marks out the beginning of a new section. So we get a bit of an introduction in the first eight verses, and we get a conclusion at the end, as with any, um, any writing. And then you get four different visions. The first, which we call In the Spirit One, is about the exalted Christ sending messages to seven churches. Okay, and we'll have a bit of a look at that. The next vision, which is the longest, which goes from chapters 4 up until chapter 16, is a vision that takes place in heaven. Okay, So the first three chapters, it takes place on the island of Patmos. The next one, John, is, his body is probably not transported to heaven, but he, he has a vision of heaven's perspective on earthly realities. And the theme of that particular section is the lamb and his people conquer. You then get another vision, which is the third vision, and that's chapters 17 all the way up to chapter 21, verse 8. 
And I've called this a tale of two cities because it's broadly about two different cities, one of which is called Babylon and one of which is called Jerusalem. They symbolize two different realities. And it's basically about the destruction and fall of the city called Babylon, which is the worldly, ungodly city. And it's about the coming down of the new Jerusalem from heaven. And no prizes for guessing what uh, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, is a reference to. I'll spoil it. It's a reference to the church, the people of God. And so it's this playoff in this vision between the worldly city that looks so attractive, but is stripped away, destroyed and shown for what it truly is. And the beautification and the, remake and, the, and the making pure and beautiful of the church, the people of God. It's a glorious section. And then the final section just ramps up um, that emphasis even more. So chapter 21, verse 9, all the way to chapter 22, verse 5. And I've called this one, it's the beauty of the new Jerusalem. It's this amazing, glorious vision of the beauty and glory of what the church will be in eternity. And so that's broadly where, where Revelation in, and we'll go into a bit more detail in the different sections, but are there any questions generally about anything overall to do with Revelation that we've looked at so far? No? Okay, which means it's either as clear as mud or it makes sense. So I'm going to assume the second option there. Um, so what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through, so probably for, obviously for the rest of this session and then for the bulk of the next session, we're just going to walk through the different visions and I'm going to explain what I think that they are broadly talking about. And we're going to do a bit of thinking as we go on. How does it apply to us nowadays? And so we're going to start with vision one, which is about seven messages from the risen Christ. And the first major, major vision, as I've said, each of them starts with this idea of being in the spirit. So John is in the spirit and the Holy Spirit um, transports him, at least in his soul or in his mind, to see something each time. So there are four different visions. And in this first one, it starts in chapter 1, verse, um, verse 9, all the way to chapter 3, verse 22. And it starts with John saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And so John then turns around, having heard this voice, and he sees the risen, exalted Christ standing in the midst of seven lampstands, which represent each of the, the seven churches, and holding seven stars in his right hand, which represent the angels of the seven churches. Now, in the Old Testament, if you read the end of the book of Daniel, you'll, you'll see that there is such a thing as angels representing particular groups of people. And so I think that's the idea that's going on here. But the amazing thing is, Jesus is holding these, these stars, these angels. And Jesus is walking in the midst of the churches. He's the Lord of the churches. And if you've read Revelation 1 before, you will know that whether you understand the imagery or not, Jesus is described in this absolutely outstanding language to the point where it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. We're not talking about someone like slowly prostrating themselves before their king. We're talking about someone who looks like they've just been shot. John has this vision of the exalted Jesus and he hits the deck. That's what happens when you see the risen Christ. That's the God that we worship, is the one who stands in the midst of the lampstands. And there's just this amazing moment, which I'll probably get quite emotional at various points today because Revelation and the end times affect me. Um, and I think they need to affect us. 
Just imagine you, you have this incredible vision of the risen, exalted Jesus who you look at him and you think he could, he could squash me with his finger if he wanted to. There's, he could burn me with his eyes of fire and he falls at his feet and Jesus puts his hand on him and says, do not fear. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Imagine hearing that and imagine how much encouragement you would receive from that. Like this amazing mix of fear, probably terror. I think it is right to be terrified in a good way of God because he is terrifying. But at the same time, he says, do not fear because I have the power over death and Hades. Hades was just a word used in that time to refer to the realm of the dead. And it's Jesus's way of saying, through my death and my resurrection, I have purchased the right to destroy death. I've got the keys. No one can take them from me. I've got them. I'm the one who decides who gets in and who gets out of Hades. I'm the one who decides that. Death has no power over me anymore. And that's the Jesus that we worship. And so this risen Lord appears and he sends a message, which is the whole of the book of Revelation. But he sends specific messages to seven churches um, and we've seen to, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Those are churches that would have been in what is now modern day Turkey. And what he often does is he warns them of a particular danger. And then he promises them a reward for conquering. So Revelation is about conquering. So this session is called God Wins for very good reason, because Revelation in part is about the victory of God. But there's a very real sense in which Revelation is more about the victory of the church than it is about the victory of God. Because Revelation starts with, I've won. Now you go and conquer. That's what Revelation is talking about. It's saying the church is going to be victorious. Jesus is victorious and because he is, the church will be as well. And that is incredibly comforting, whichever century you live in. So when we look at the rise of rampant secularism, when we look at the... I mean, it's not, it's not unreasonable to think that, give it a couple of decades, I doubt we're going to be killed or chucked into prison just for believing the gospel, but we will be facing increasing forms of social rejection. We need the message of revelation, because it says in those moments, it's not just in those moments you know you're going to conquer, revelation says you conquer by being faithful in those moments. You can be a conqueror in the midst of the deepest darkest persecution and opposition and so what jesus does is he gives seven messages to some of the churches it's well done you guys are doing great hold on that's what conquering looks like to other churches it's you're doing great but here's an area you need to address address it so you can conquer and for some churches it's you guys are on the edge of being shut down i mean when we do church planting and churches and so on sometimes churches have to be shut down Okay, just because it's not working. I don't think that's the same as Jesus shutting down a church. Sometimes church plants, plants fold. It's no one's mistake. It just didn't work. I don't think that's Jesus saying, right, I've rejected you. Whereas when Jesus shuts a church down, that's scary. Okay, whatever, whatever that means, that is scary. And that's what he threatens at least one of the churches here. He says, if you don't repent from what you're doing, I'm going to remove my lampstand from you. That's scary. And so some of these messages are actually quite scary but they always end with a note of here's what happens to the one who conquers and um, 
So let's just quickly, so for the end of this session, let's just quickly run through the different dangers that are facing each of the churches. And maybe you could do a bit of thinking in your groups just before we have a break about where would you see those kind of dangers in the church today? Okay, so think probably mainly church in the UK and so on, but for some of them, you may need to think a bit further abroad, church worldwide. Ephesus, the danger was that they were abandoning the love that they had at first, which could mean either that they were not loving God in the way that they used to, or perhaps more likely, but it's linked, that they weren't loving one another in the way that they used to. Smyrna, their danger is that persecution is coming. Okay? Now, they haven't done anything wrong. They're, they're commended, but Jesus says, persecution's coming your way. Hold fast. Pergamum are, t- are rebuked for the fact that, although they're, in some ways they're doing okay, they've been tolerating false teaching and idolatry. And they need to repent from that. They need to chuck out the false teachers and turn back to true teaching. Thyatira, same, they're tolerating false teaching and idolatry. Sardis, their works are imperfect, they're dead. It's like they're doing stuff, but it's not not fruitful in God's eyes at all. There's a deadness to the way that they're working, and they're spiritually sleepy. And so Jesus tells them to wake up. Philadelphia, there's no obvious danger, so we can't really discuss in what way does the danger that Philadelphia are facing affect us, because they're not facing an obvious danger. Um, but they are commended for a number of things. And then Laodicea, probably the most famous of them, is that they are rebuked. The danger they're facing is they're lukewarm. And just quickly to kind of help explain the whole lukewarm imagery thing. When Jesus says, I wish that you were hot or cold, I don't think he's saying, you know what, I wish you were either on fire for me or I wish you just weren't a Christian. He's talking in terms of hot food, hot drinks, really good, yeah? Cold food, cold drinks, nice. Tepid, lukewarm. um, I mean, if if you've ever had lukewarm water, it's just, it's something nasty about it. And so he's saying, I wish that you you were good rather than lukewarm. I wish that you were either like a lovely cold drink that's refreshing, or I wish that you were like a lovely warm, hot drink that actually, like, nice tea or a nice warm bath or something. Because you're in, because you're just in this state of meh, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth if, that, if you don't repent. Again, scary thing to be told by the risen Jesus. Let's have a quick, so it's, it's about 10, so we'll have five minute, um, five minute discussion, so maybe two, three minutes, and then we'll hear a quick, um, quick bit of feedback, and then we'll have a 15 minute break. So which, what, maybe let's rephrase the question slightly. Which of those dangers do you think is perhaps the highest for the church in the UK? Okay, you might debate a little bit about that. I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer, but which of those dangers do you think we need to be aware of in the church in the UK? Okay. All right, very, very briefly. Um, I'm not actually going to ask for feedback so that you do get a break, but I'm, I'm just going just to make a few comments that I, I think perhaps some of these dangers might be more significant in the church in the UK um, than, than necessarily worldwide, but I do think there's a sense in which each of these dangers is a real danger in some form. They might just not be quite as severe as in some other parts of the world. So I think abandoning the love we had at first, if this is talking about love for one another, I think in a Western culture, we have a lot to learn about how true Christian love and community works. Um, just because I think it's, a, it's, it's just a difficulty culturally. So you go to a lot of parts of the world, hospitality, caring, like welcoming one another into our home is, is, 
is just kind of part and parcel of how the way culture works. And so I'm not saying the UK church are doing badly. I'm just saying we've got a, we've got a tougher challenge because we live in a culture where caring for one another in that very radical way is not necessarily as much part of our culture. There will be certain parts of our culture that are much more in line with the gospel than, for example, other, other um, parts of the culture in the Middle East. But I think that this kind of love for one another, sharing what we have, welcoming one another and so on, I think we're doing great. But I think we've got a battle on our hands because we live in a culture where that's just not the way that people usually do life. Um, I think persecution, like I said, I don't think we're facing martyrdom. But I think we are increasingly facing social ostracization and social rejection. And I think one of, perhaps one of the hardest uh, groups, of, of, I think one of the most difficult uh, age bracket to be in as a, as, a, as a passionate Christian nowadays, I think is a teenager. I think that the, I think rewind 10 years, you would have faced mockery from your school friends. I think now you face mockery and thinking, how on earth do I stand up for what I believe is true? And how do I, I, I just think that's a tough call. And so we need to be praying for our teenagers. Um, just thought worth saying that. False teaching and idolatry, I mean, always a danger. I think in a world with millions of podcasts, there's some great stuff out there. There's some absolute rubbish. There's, I mean, there's some absolute rubbish in the sense that it's just not that great teaching, but there is some stuff that is birthed out of the pit of hell that is accessible at the click of a button. And you just think, God help us. We need to, I think in the early church, in a, in a sense, protecting against false teaching was a little bit more straightforward. If there was false teaching, it was because a false teacher had come into your church and was teaching people. And so the answer was, you repent or you leave. Nowadays, I think the part of the difficulty of pastoral ministry is you're helping people with like what podcasts do you listen to what do you expose yourself to online what what books are you reading so i think there is a danger there dead imperfect works i think always a danger it's always a danger that we we do stuff just because we're used to doing it and there's no vitality there's no reality to it there's no love for god that comes through it and then being lukewarm i don't think that even needs explaining i think we we live in a country where there is still so much nominal religion so much nominal Christianity still and it's very easy to 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 kind of to basically just be a Sunday Christian like, oh, I go to church on Sunday but it doesn't really affect the way that I live throughout the rest of the week and I think we don't want to be a church that's lukewarm we want to be a church that is hot for God and that is cold in this in the good sense a refreshing to him as he as he looks at us so there's dangers I think for each of these although perhaps the, the way that would have manifested itself in the first century might look slightly different. Yep, one question, then we'll do it for a break. Do you think there's a danger in Philadelphia not having an obvious danger? Yeah, let me remind myself, I think they're one, I think they're one of the churches that are, um, they're, they're about to face some other form of, some form of persecution. It's just not, doesn't seem quite as extreme as, um, as Smyrna. So although it says no obvious one, there is, they're basically told to keep going, pretty much. That's, that's what they're doing. So there, there is a danger, um, but it's just not, it's not like a, here's exactly what you're going to face. So actually, maybe I should have just put there's persecution coming for that one. So there is still a danger. Specific verse is, yeah. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world because yeah. those who dwell on the earth. There we go. So there, there, there's a sense of encouragement that God's, God's saying, I'm going to preserve you. Um, whereas I think with the church in Sardis, there was a, it was much more extreme in the sense it's like some of you are going to be thrown in prison. And um, I think that it was the church in Sardis where they had a guy who would, um, is it Smyrna or Smyrna, sorry? Um, no, Antipas, Antipas the faithful servant. Where has he gone? Oh, no, that was Pergamum, sorry. But um, no, the church in Sardis, there's a 
there's there's a very clear tribulation that's coming. The church in Philadelphia, they're about to face persecution, but God's very much encouraging, I'm going to preserve you, don't, like, you'll be okay. Um, right, let's do a 15-minute break, so we can um, come back at about, just before 25 past. Okay, let's uh, jump back in. If you're still coming back, let's, let's all filter back. We've done the first vision. Like we haven't obviously done it complete justice, but we kind of covered broadly what goes on. Um, so what then happens is we then move on to the second vision, which, as I've said, is the longest, because it's pretty much chapters 4 all the way to 16, whereas the first vision was only half of chapter 1 up to, to chapter 3 of Revelation. And uh, so we're going to, again, we're not going to be able to do justice to everything, but hopefully what we can do is, as we whiz through, is get a sense of the bigness of, uh, of what's going on. And... Um, Vision 2 starts with what I've called the backbone of the book. Okay, so if you, I mean, it's pretty, a pretty gruesome kind of image, but if you take someone's backbone out, what happens to them? They just collapse in a, in a flob on the floor, if the flob is even a word. They're just, like, there's, there's no structure to it. There's no, there's no strength to it. Now, Revelation 4 and 5, what is described in there, if you take those two chapters out of the book... The rest of it might sound lovely, but there's no guarantee that it's actually going to happen. There's no guarantee that what, what John is writing can actually come to pass because it all depends on what is described in chapters 4 and 5 being true. And if they are, the rest of it will unfold. And so the way it works, I'm going to explain how chapter 4 works, and then I'm going to read chunks of chapter 5 and explain as we go. Chapter 5, by the way, is my favourite chapter in the whole Bible, so hence <laughs> wanting to read parts of it out loud. Also, we're told at the beginning of Revelation, blessed is the one who reads the words of these prophecy aloud. Um, because in the early church, most people couldn't read. So there was a blessing on reading the words of this book aloud. And so if you want to describe chapter four and chapter five and why they're the backbone is chapter four tells us that God is on the throne, which is a symbol for the idea that God is in control. So important that we know that. Chapter five is the second part of the puzzle, is that the lamb has conquered. And so the way it works is you've got this incredible vision in chapter four. So it says at the beginning of chapter four, I was taken in the spirit, a door opened in heaven, and I was taken in the spirit. Uh, once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven. And, and John has this amazing vision of, the, of heaven, which by the way, when the Bible talks about heaven, it usually is talking about one of two things. It's either talking about the sky, it's just same word as, as sky in, in Hebrew and in Greek. Or it's talking about the, the dwelling place of God, the place of kind of God's throne room. Okay? The Bible doesn't tend to use the word heaven that much, if at all, to actually talk about what we often think of when we think of as heaven, which is where you go when you die. Okay? The Bible has other words to use to refer to that. Heaven usually in the Bible is talking about, I don't know, central control of God's um, God kind of being sovereign over all things so he has a vision of heaven of the throne room of God and he sees 24 elders around the throne a number of different ways of interpreting that exactly but I think most people would agree that there's some sense in which they represent hum humanity that has been redeemed by God there's um, four living creatures in the midst of the throne there's a glass sea before the throne it's it's by the way, if you want an Old Testament passage that gives a lot of this imagery, does anyone know where a lot of it comes from? Isaiah does have some of it, definitely, when it talks about holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Yeah, Ezekiel 1 is probably the most important chapter for getting a lot of this imagery. 
And um, so it's just this mind-blowing description of the throne room of God. And uh, interestingly, God is not dis- God's appearance is not described in much detail, which is often what you get when you see appearances of God in the Old Testament. It's kind of like, I know, you got, and he had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne, it's like, wait, 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 can't you describe God a bit more? And it's almost like, well, no, I can't. I can't describe God. Like, I, I, there's no way I could do that. But he's got this vision of the throne, throne of God. And the way I would interpret a lot, most, pretty much all of Revelation, is that these are symbols that are meant to communicate something rather than literally what you would see if you were in heaven. I think that's the way I would usually read it. And so um, rather than, I, I don't know, is there going, is there literally a glass sea in God's throne room? Maybe, but I think most importantly, it's communicating something. And I think in the context of Revelation, a glass sea is quite significant because what, does anyone, yeah, sea is scary. Okay, the sea, if, if, okay, we think of the sea, we think, yay, surfing, holiday by the sea, seaside. If, you're, uh, if, if you have to use a flimsy wooden boat at sea, the sea is synonymous with chaos and terror. And so in, sorry? It's the eternal calm to sea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you've got God sitting on the throne and in front of him, the rest of the book of Revelation, you see the sea and it's basically the turmoil and chaos of the nations in heaven. Complete peace, silence. There's no opposition to God. So it's, it's symbolizing certain things. So God is on his throne and the whole of heaven is worshiping him for the whole of eternity. If you read, so holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's taken and slightly modified out of Isaiah 6. So for at least the last 800 years before this was written and presumably for the whole of eternity past and the whole of eternity to come, the angels around the throne have been singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty day and night. They, heaven does not get, uh, get tired of singing the same refrain over and over again. But something then happens in chapter 5, which is particularly significant. So God is on the throne, but if God is in control, that's good news. But what does that mean for us? Because if God is in control, but there's no purpose to actually redeem humanity, then we're, we're stuffed. We've got no hope. And what chapter 5 does is it answers that question. Chapter four says, God is sovereign. Chapter five says, and the lamb has conquered, which means it's not just that God's in control. It's also that the church is going to be victorious as well. And so I'm just going to read certain parts of chapter five and explain as I go. Um, I think it's important to spend a little bit more time perhaps on on this than we might for a lot of the other passages, because as I said, it's the backbone of the book. And so what we get is off the back of this amazing vision of heaven, chapter five starts, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Okay, what's going on here? So this is a picture of God on the throne. And at his right hand, there's a scroll. So something like this, sealed with seven wax stamps, seven seals. Now this scroll, because of a lot of biblical imagery um, that you get in the Old Testament, I think this is taken from Jeremiah particularly, seems to be symbolizing God's purposes for redemption and for judgment for, for the world. So you could say, as long as this scroll remains shut, there is no hope, there is no future, there is no justice. 
history will just keep going in, on loop, in cycles. There's no definitive moment where God is going to step in and judge the world, re- reward his followers and judge those and bring justice to those who have oppressed them and those who have gone against him. Which is why John weeps loudly. Has everyone ever read that passage and thought, that seems a bit of an overreaction to the fact that no one can open a book? I mean, it would be. If it was literally just a book, it would be like, come on, John, you're an adult. I know, I know it's probably quite impressive being in heaven and all that, but it, a bit of an overreaction to not being able to open a book. What John's witnessing is there's no hope. History's just going to keep going in cycles. And remember, John is living at a time where the church is facing pressure. He's on Patmos probably because he's been exiled there because of preaching the gospel. And he's seeing that if this scroll remains shut, there's no hope. I think we would all weep in that situation. But then, verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Someone has been found worthy to open the scroll. No one, no angel, no human being has been found worthy. No one has been found worthy to bring history to its climax apart from one. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And so imagine you're John at this point. You're thinking, yes, the lion's conquered, but you're probably a little bit scared because you're probably about to encounter a lion. You're not in a cage. You're about to encounter a roaring lion. And it says, verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Don't worry too much about a lot of the details. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Lion or lamb? So John hears the lion has conquered and he turns around and he sees a dead lamb. Imagine the shock. But this is the glorious reality that the way that the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered is by becoming the lamb that was slain. And then essentially what happens is The lamb, uh, sorry, verse eight, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped they sung a new song what is it that makes heaven add a new chorus to its songbook i said that chapter four the angels have been singing holy 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 for probably the whole of eternity past heaven doesn't seem to mind singing the same thing on loop when they see god but something happens here that as far as i'm aware this is the only time in the bible that heaven sings a new song a little bit later in revelation there is another moment as well but as far as i I can tell we're, we're told to sing a new song in the psalms sing a new song to the lord for he has done great things 
But as far as I can see, this is the only place in the Bible that heaven sings a new song. What is it that makes heaven add a new song to its songbook? And the reality is that the apparent defeat of a guy who claimed to be the Messiah in about 30 AD, of a Jewish man from a peasant background, son of a carpenter, hanging on a Roman cross. From a human point of view, that was an utter defeat. From heaven's point of view, that was so victorious, so all-encompassing, so powerful, so mighty, so unequivocal, so once for all that heaven exploded into praise and said, that's worth adding a new song in our songbook for. Heaven looks at the cross and says, we don't ever want to sweep that under the carpet. For the rest of eternity, Jesus will be known as the lamb who was slain. The cross is not, in heaven's eyes, some unfortunate accident. It's like, oh, well, we had to go through that, but once, once Jesus has gone through it, let's just forget about it. Heaven loves the fact that Jesus has conquered by becoming the lamb. And he is now worthy. And so this is talking about a past event. This is describing something that, that, where the deal was sealed at the death and resurrection of Jesus, which means there is someone who stands at the right hand of God who is worthy, and he is worthy to bring history to its climax. And so that is the good news that can be proclaimed to the whole world and to, can be proclaimed to martyrs all around the world. To those who were killed in communist China because they believed the gospel, don't weep anymore, the lamb has conquered. There's hope. To those who are facing oppression and persecution and danger and famine and sword, as Paul says in Romans 8, you're more than conquerors through him who loved you because nothing can separate you from the love of God. Christ has won. There is redemption. There is a future. And that is why, well, partly that's why that's my favorite chapter in the Bible, but that is why that's the backbone of the book. You take this out, the whole thing crumples. You put it in, everything follows. And that's what we're going to spend the next half hour or so looking at. Does that make sense? Everyone? Okay, I'm going to speed up a little bit because um, otherwise you'll get a load of Revelation and, well, you're obviously going to get end time in Revelation, but you won't get a lot of other stuff that the Bible has to say about the end times. Off the back of this, the Lamb opening or taking the, the scroll, what we get is three cycles of seven. Seven, very important number. So seven days of the week, which is probably why it's a num the number of completeness. Number of days in which God created the world, seven represents completion. And what you get is off the back of, um, of the lamb taking the scroll, he starts opening the seals, one of them at a time. And that's in chapter, uh, chapter six. And then in chapters eight to nine, you get another sequence of seven, which is seven trumpets. And then in chapters 15 to 16, you get another sequence of seven, which is seven bowls of wrath being poured, poured out on the earth. Now, my take on this and the take of a lot of people is that these probably represent heaven's, a heaven's eye view on the kind of events that happen throughout history, but that all of these events are under God's control and all of these events are fulfilling God's purposes to bring, to bring history to its climax. And the way I would read them is that the, set, the, the three sets of seven, so you've got the seals in chapter six, the seven trumpets in, um, in chapters eight to nine, and the seven bowls of wrath, are actually covering the whole of church history each. That they're three slightly different ways of looking at the same periods. And they're giving general, um, I suppose, general symbols of the kind of events that go on throughout history. And obviously what they're doing is they're often using symbols which would have been immediately familiar to the early church. 
So a lot of symbols to do with swords and bows and so on wouldn't necessarily make that much sense in our world because no one fights with swords and bows and arrows anymore, but that would have for them. And so the way I kind of see this is a little bit like football action replays or like slow motion. Okay? Imagine you're an alien and you come to Earth, you've never, heard, you've never seen a football match, you've never seen a sports match, and you watch this thing on TV and you think, oh, wow, I'm going to be careful not to name teams here because I could end up with, okay, Man City, Man United, I imagine rivalry is going on in the room. So let's imagine a team of some description is playing on the TV and someone scores this amazing goal. Imagine you're an alien watching this and after you watch them score this goal, there are then five other goals that happen, but you think, that's amazing, he just scored a goal and now he's scoring another goal, but somehow he's moving really slowly and the ball is going through the air much more slowly than it usually How is he doing that? And we'd all understand this is action replay. Like It's basically the same thing, but from different perspectives. The aliens going, my goodness, they've scored six goals in one go and five of them were really slow. How on earth could the goalkeeper not stop that? And I think that's what's going on here, is that these are different perspectives on the whole of the time between the resurrection of Jesus and the moment where he comes back. And the reason I believe that is because every single one of these seven, um, series of seven, ends with a description that seems like the end of time, that seems like the return of Jesus, that seems like everything is all coming to, coming to some kind of climax. Now, some people will interpret them slightly differently, but I think there's a lot of a lot of people that would. That being said, it's important to note that on the narrative level, so in other words, when you read Revelation itself, the trumpets are more severe than the seals and the bowls of wrath are more severe than the trumpets. So I think on the one hand, I think they're describing broadly the same period of history, but on the other hand, they're also giving us a sense of escalating judgment, that God is bringing escalating judgment throughout history on those who oppose him, and is bringing about his purposes. And so as you read through them, I would avoid the temptation of trying to pin very specific historical events onto them. I do think that there are certain historical events that are alluded to. I'll give you an example. The uh, Black Horse, which is the third seal. So the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. We're actually talking about them, which, uh, which is great. The Black Horse um, talks about... Uh, so this is in chapter 6, verse 5. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in its hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Okay, this might not make much sense to us, but this is basically a lot of money to pay for that amount of wheat. So it's probably describing famine, but it then says, do not harm the oil and wine. And now this is quite likely an allusion to the kind of thing that Roman emperors sometimes did when there was a famine, where often what would happen is there was a famine, a Roman emperor would make a a declaration, get rid of vineyards, because to be honest, we don't need wine at the moment, and plant as much grain as you can in the vineyards. But there was a famine at one point under the emperor Domitian, where he refused to do that. And I think the empire ended up suffering as a result. He said, no, don't get rid of the vineyards. We still want wine. And as a result, there was a much more severe famine. Now, I don't think this is is necessarily saying that event was the third trumpet. I think what it's doing is using realities that the audience would have been familiar with to say, when famine happens, and you're familiar with this, 
This is under God's sovereign control. Don't worry, God hasn't abandoned you in this moment. This is under God's control. Does that make sense? So that's the way I would read those. Um, like I said, other people will read them slightly differently, but I would generally avoid trying to find specific events in them. And one final thing to mention, let me just see time-wise whether we can... I'll get you to do that in your own time, actually. But one final thing to mention is each... The first two of these series, Cycles of Seven, so Seals and Trumpets, have what you might call an interlude in them. The first of those is... So in Chapter 7, which basically after the sixth seal being opened, there's a chapter which talks about 144,000 being sealed and then a great multitude from all nations and all tribes and tongues singing salvation belongs to our God. And I think this interlude, which I use in quotation marks because it's not like John says, and by the way, we're now going to take a break to have, a, uh, to have adverts on the TV. That's not the kind of interlude we're talking about. It's in the midst of the sixth seal being open. God says to John, I want to show you that in the midst of all of this disaster, the church is kept safe. Now, that doesn't mean they don't experience persecution. Okay, so when we say the church is kept safe, that doesn't mean, yay, we're never going to face any suffering. It means from an eternal point of view, the church is safe. There's another interlude that happens after the sixth trumpet. And that at that point talks more about what's, what I might call the prophetic ministry of the church. And by prophetic ministry, I mean the responsibility that the church have to proclaim the gospel, even at the cost of their lives. And the fact that even though it will cost them their life, God is ultimately going to reward them and restore them. So that's broadly what's going on there. Does that make sense to everyone? Yeah. Are there any, any questions on, on that in particular? Apart from questions along the line of what does this particular seal or trumpet um, refer to in history? Because I probably won't be able to give the answer slash I'm not sure that's really the way we're meant to read them. Yep. Sorry. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. So that to me is like if it is 144,000 yep. or whichever way you want to look at it, that is the fruits of their ministry. Mm -hmm. You know, the great multitude is yep. just, it's the harvest. Is, yeah. Um, am I explaining? No, 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 absolutely. So you're, you're saying the 144,000 are kind of come as a result of the church preaching the gospel? Is that. Well, I yep. think it's a literal one. I think it's the Jews. So, so do, yeah. Ah, oh, yes, okay, yeah, yeah. So, and they put that, then it says, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude. Yeah. That's like their ministry. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'll, I'll just explain that to people because um, this is actually quite a, a helpful thing to comment on. So in chapter 7, you've got a vision of 144,000 sealed from all the tribes of Israel, and then you have a vision of a great multitude. Now, broadly, there are two ways of interpreting that that I would feel comfortable with and think makes sense of the text. One of those options, and remember I read out from a guy called Peter Lightheart earlier, so he's a guy who's written a big commentary on Revelation. So he would, he would explain things in the way that you have just there, which is that... The first half of the vision, 144,000 from the tribe of Israel, he would say this is a reference to Jewish Christians who then they go and proclaim the good news. And as a result of them proclaiming the good news, you then get a multitude from every nation and tribe and tongue. And so that's the way that Peter Lightheart would read it. He would say the two halves of the chapter are referring to slightly different realities. The way I would read it and the way that other, a number of others would as well is that in Revelation, you sometimes have this interplay between hearing and seeing. So we saw that with the lion and the lamb thing. So John hears the lion has conquered. Then he turns around and he sees a lamb. 
And so the way I would read chapter 7, personally, is that I think John hears 144,000 sealed from every tribe of Israel, and he turns around and then sees what that actually means in reality. Now, we could debate and argue that, and people have, so that's just to give you the two options that are there. And you can read the text yourself and think, does this sound more like it's talking about Jewish Christians who are, sealed, who are saved, sealed by God, and then they go and proclaim to the Gentiles, which is historically what happened. The first Christians were Jewish. Or does this look like what's happening is the language of Israel and the completion of God's people, 144,000 is 12 squared times 1,000. Is that a way of describing the completeness of God's people? And then when John turns around, he sees, ah, oh, it's people from all tribes and languages. I think at the end of the day, whichever interpretation you get, you end up with a multitude from every nation and tribe and tongue. I'd personally read it as two sides of the same coin. But like I said, it's, that, it's not an odd view, that one. That is that would be a common view in a number of commentaries. Whatever the case is, though, we end up with a multitude from every nation and language and people and people group and tongue. Yep. Okay. Let's. Sorry, was that a. Uh... No, all good. Great. <laughs> that was a, a stretch rather than a question. Okay. Let me just see. We've got a few pages to get through, um, and then we can start talking generally more about the end times. But um, hopefully you're getting a sense that I'm excited about Revelation and that you should be too. I think uh, I don't want to diminish the fact that it is, it is a challenge sometimes to understand. So I, nothing, what I don't want to come across is, come on, guys, it's not that difficult. It is a challenge. It's a very different kind of writing to what we usually have. But there's so much in there. And I think there's a message that the church nowadays needs to hear. And uh, chapters 12 to 14 may well be, uh, be one of those. So I think you, I don't think you have the notes completed in your form. So this is page, or do you? No, you don't. No, page on page eight. Um, so here is where, so sandwiched between the trumpets. So you remember the cycles of seven, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. Sandwiched between the seals and the bowls of wrath. There is another section, Revelation 12 to 14, which I've called woman, dragon, beasts, and saints. Now, again, the way I read Revelation, I don't think this is a chronological thing, that you're kind of like, after the seventh trumpet, you then get a woman, and, uh, oh yeah, that picture, I'll come, up, come on to that in a minute. Um, I, so I, I think this is, again, a, perhaps another one of those action replay moments. It's like, here's another way of looking at what goes on throughout history. And so the way it works, I'm just basically going to summarise it and then give what I think, what I think is the way that the early church would have understood it and then explain how that obviously then applies to us. So chapter 12, you've got a dragon who appears in heaven and a woman who's in labor. And the dragon tries to destroy the woman's newborn son, but he's unable to. And what then happens is that the, the son is taken up to heaven and the dragon ends up being cast down to the earth. And he's furious when he does. And so he starts pursuing the woman who gave birth to the son, but the woman is kept safe. Okay, this is a slightly odd story, but follow me. And then the dragon plans to make war on the rest of the women's offspring. So we've got a child born, the dragon wants to destroy the child, but is unable to. And so rather than pursuing the child who is now safe in heaven, the dragon turns and tries to pursue the child's mother, but the mother is also kept safe. And so the dragon then decides, right, that's it. I'm gonna make war on the rest of her offspring. So I think the most likely way of reading this, and I don't think this, this isn't majorly controversial by the way, Chapter 13 will be a bit more controversial. Dragon is Satan. The woman is, represents, at various points, Israel slash the people of God. Okay, so Israel give birth to the Messiah. 
right? So Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. He's an Israelite. And Satan is defeated by the Messiah, Jesus, and his followers. So when Satan is cast down from heaven in Revelation 12, that's a reference to what happens at the cross and resurrection. Okay, the interesting thing, just a side note, I think when we think of the fall of Satan, it's quite easy for us to think something that happened before the Garden of Eden. Now, clearly, some kind of rebellion or something happened before the Garden of Eden for Satan to be evil. But when the Bible talks about the fall of Satan, it's referring to the moment where Satan is cast down out of heaven at the cross. So if you read Job, for example, and you read the beginning of Job and it says, um, basically, all of the angels um, came and gathered together around God and uh, Satan was there as well. And Satan appeared to God and said, oh, can I basically take away all of Job's stuff to tempt him? Has anyone ever read that? And thought, What on earth is Satan doing in heaven? Like, How on earth did he even get there? And there seems to be this idea in the Old Testament that although Satan is an undesirable person, that he has some kind of nasty but official role in heaven which is to accuse God's people and this chapter tells us that at the cross and resurrection of Jesus Satan has been fired and has been cast down to earth in other words so when we sing when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within up would I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin it's not just that at the cross and resurrection Jesus says you're not guilty and when Satan lies in your ear don't believe him it's so that the cross and resurrection, Satan does not even have the right to accuse you before God. Before the cross, Satan had the right to accuse God's people. After the cross and resurrection, God does not listen to Satan. I mean, many times he didn't listen to him anyway, but he, doesn't, like, he has no legal right to accuse you. He has been cast down out of heaven, but he is very angry about it. And so the rest of this chapter kind of pictures the fact that Because Satan has been cast out of heaven, he knows that there is a time coming where he's going to be cast into hell for eternity. He wants to do as much damage as he possibly can. And so he tries to persecute the woman, which may... So perhaps what's going on here is that he's initially persecuting Jewish Jewish followers of Jesus. And then it says when he's not able to actually destroy them, he goes and makes war against the rest of their offspring. I think it's basically just a way of saying Satan is always going to try and stamp out the church. He's just going to try as hard as he can. And what we then get off the back of that is chapter 13, which is a bit of a narrowing in. Now, this is where it gets controversial. And so what I'm going to do is just give my particular take on this. And as a caveat, say there's a lot of debate around this. Chapter 13 is where we get the beast. Or should I say the beasts, plural? Because we sometimes forget that there are actually two beasts. One comes out of the sea and looks kind of like that. Seven heads, lots of horns and so on. And then the inhabitants of the world, the world worship the beast. The beast is given authority to conquer the followers of the lamb. So we've got the first beast and he is basically given victory over the followers of the lamb. But then you get a second beast that comes out of the land and that beast forces people to worship the first beast. And he puts a mark on the forehead of those who follow the first beast. So you've got first beast is the, like, essentially is given Satan's authority on earth. And then a second beast that says, I am going to force you guys to worship the first beast. And if you don't take the mark of the beast on your forehead, then you're not going to be allowed to trade. You're going to be outcast. You're going to be killed. Okay. Now, obviously, this is a controversial chapter. Here's what I think the early church would have understood by it. And I'm going to explain that even if I'm wrong, 
it still, I think, applies to today. So I think that the early Christians would have understood the first beast to, refer, to be referring to imperial Rome. Now, I can give a number of reasons for that. We could maybe chat in the break if you wanted to. I think they would have... So whether it's actually referring to Rome or not, I think it is. I think the early readers would have understood Rome because that's the big empire of the day that was starting to try and stamp out Christians. And then I think the second beast would be the local rulers in what is now modern-day Turkey, near where those seven churches are, that are promoting what's called the imperial cult. So in what is now modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, there was a lot of worship of the emperor. Okay? That wasn't the case in all of the Roman Empire, but in the east, in, in, modern, in now modern-day Turkey, there was a lot of emphasis on worshipping the emperor. And if you didn't offer sacrifices to the emperor, you're not allowed to buy anything. And so those who refuse to pledge allegiance to the emperor are outcast and even killed. And so I think the way this would have been read, and I think what it's actually saying, is this is a warning and an encouragement to the churches in Asia Minor to say, don't throw your lot in with Rome. Don't compromise. Don't worship the emperor. Don't just, don't just say, oh, well, for the sake of being able to buy some meat or being able to go to the market and not being killed, we're just going to offer a little sacrifice to the emperor. It's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. This is a call. So it says halfway through, here is a call for endurance and for perseverance of the saints. Now, I think that means that this applies very, very real and in a very real way in the, in the modern context as well. Because even if the beast is talking about Rome and is talking about um, the imperial cult, rather than someone who's going to come in the future... I mean, how many times throughout history has this same dynamic played itself out? I mean, you just have to think of a, a number of different situations. You think of com- communist Russia. Think of Nazi Germany, where you think there's a, a beast-like figure who essentially demands worship and allegiance. And if you don't pledge allegiance to him, you're, you're history. And so although I read it like this, I think this is a, a hugely relevant to us in any time. And so we, always, we need to be looking out for, in what ways am I going to be tempted to compromise and give allegiance to something that isn't Jesus? Okay, so obviously that is probably one of the more controversial things I'll say. So I would read this as primarily a description of what's going on in their day. Um, and therefore it's hugely relevant at any time of history. So I wouldn't read this primarily as a prophecy of, in the future there's going to be a beast I'd say, I think this is something that's happening already in the first century, but the spiritual reality that's going on behind it happens all the way throughout history, and therefore we need to be careful. And I will avoid taking questions on that because we could spend the whole day, and so feel free to find me in the break if you did want to tease that out a little bit. But then chapter 14, you get 144,000 sealed with the seal of God on Mount Zion. So if you remember in my reading, the 144,000 is the same as describing the completeness of God's people. They've not defiled themselves with women and are virgins. This is not a way of saying that sex and marriage are wrong. It's a picture of a, a people who are completely pure. They've not given into idolatry. An angel announces that Babylon is fallen. Then another one warns that those who worship the beast will experience the wrath of God. Another says that those who die in the Lord will be blessed from now on. And finally, there's a vision of two visions of the earth being harvested. Okay, lots of complex stuff going on, but broadly, off the back of two chapters where we've had intense persecution of the church, this is a way of encouraging the church. You will be preserved. You are, if you follow Jesus, you are safe, ultimately. You may give your life for it. You may well literally be tortured and killed, but ultimately you are safe because 
you have the seal of God on your forehead. So the number of the beast is not the first time that a seal has been spoken about in Revelation. The first time a seal has been spoken about in Revelation was actually chapter 7. So God's people are sealed far before the beast actually ever gives a mark to anyone. And it's a way of saying, if you hold fast to Jesus, you are safe. And a day is coming where God is going to bring judgment on those who have oppressed you, whether that's Rome or communist Russia or communist China or Nazi Germany or any group of people or people who have set themselves up to oppress the church, justice will be done one day. You can make sure that you love not your life even unto death because you are safe. That makes sense? Okay. We're all tracking? We're happy to kind of push on and then, what we're, and then we'll, have a, um, we'll have a break and then we'll do the um, eschatology part, which a, a number of, a, a lot of the eschatology will kind of end up covering anyway through looking at Revelation. But... Um, Obviously, Revelation is not just interchangeable with end times. There's a lot more going on in there. We've done vision two, which is the longest of the lot. So well done there. So we've got two more short visions to do now before we have a, a final break. And so we've got the third vision, which I've said you could kind of call the tale of two cities. Because what we get in this vision as a whole, so that's from chapter 17 all the way through to the first few verses of chapter 21 is a contrast between two different cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. And I'm going to explain what I think they both represent. So we're going to look at the New Jerusalem later, but just at this point to note that when John has a vision of the city of Babylon in chapter 17 and 18, and when he has a vision of the New Jerusalem in chapter 21, structurally, it's all, those visions are almost the same. They're very different in content, but the structure and a lot of the language that is used is the same. And we'll see how that works. But it's trying to tell us these are meant to be seen in juxtaposition, in opposition. This is a contrast between Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon that, again, well, I'll, I'll talk about what I think specifically it's referring to. But more generally, from a spiritual point of view, Babylon is referring to ungodly empires that oppose God. Jerusalem is referring to the true people of God. And there's going to be the dwelling place of God's presence for the whole of eternity. So let's look at the first city, Babylon. And John has a vision of a prostitute sitting on a scarlet beast with a cup full of abominations. So she commits sexual immorality with the kings of the earth. So that's probably an image of idolatry. Okay? Sexual immorality is often used in the Old Testament to refer to idolatry. So we've got a, a vision of a prostitute who's sitting on a scarlet beast and she's committing idolatry. So she's drunk on the blood of the saints which means she's trying to stamp out the church. She's trying to destroy the church. And she's called Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Not, not a great title to have on your CV. This, uh, and the angel explains to John who the prostitute and the beast are. And so the way I'd read it, it, particularly in light of how I've read chapter 13 and so on, is I think, again, they're probably to be identified with imperial Rome. And the reason is John says... This is referring to the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, regardless of how we feel it applies nowadays, if you're reading in the first century and you think, what is the great city that has dominion over all the kings of the earth? It's Rome. And so I think John is seeing a, a picture of what Rome looks like from the outside. Okay? A very attractive woman who is drunk, who is enjoying partying, and who is basically committing sexual immorality with lots of people. There's a, in, in a sense, from a Christian point of view, we see that and we think, well, that's wrong because obviously sexual immorality and so on. But actually from a worldly point of view, you're looking at it thinking, she's having a great time. 
This is the city of pleasure. And then what happens is that the scarlet beast seeks to conquer the lamb, but instead is going to be defeated. And ultimately, the beast on which the prostitute is sat will turn against the prostitute, which I think is a way of saying that evil ultimately always eats itself up. So you've got the city of Rome sitting on the beast, which broadly still, I think, represents Rome. And eventually that beast is going to turn on that. The scarlet beast is going to turn on the prostitute. And what we see is in chapter 18, we see the destruction of the prostitute. And so we go from this picture where John is marveling. He's going, oh, my word, this is impressive to chapter 18, where the city is completely destroyed. And it says Babylon has fallen. She has become a haunt for demons and evil spirits and every unclean bird which is a way of saying she's been shown for who she truly is. Looked impressive, looked big. Rome was meant to last for eternity, and it didn't. God brought judgment against it, ultimately. And all those who've relied on trading with Babylon and mourning over her, but heaven has a different perspective, and heaven rejoices when it sees the fact that the empire that has set itself up to oppress God's people has fallen. Now, regardless of what you think, whether that's correct or whether it is talking about Rome, or whether it's talking about a spiritual reality more generally, I think that it applies very generally to any spiritual reality of people that set themselves up in opposition to God. So as with the beast, I think the beast and the prostitute and the the beast that they're sitting on are referring to the same kind of reality. That there will be very, very, very impressive empires and systems that set themselves up as if they are the solution to everything and that look to stamp out the church. And it will be very tempting to, as John, when he sees this particular vision, go, whoa, that's impressive. How on earth are we going to survive against this? And God encourages his church by saying, keep on going, keep on persevering. There's a day coming where they will be no more and you will be for the whole of eternity. Does that make sense? Yeah? I mean, maybe quickly in, in groups, maybe you can think, Bearing in mind that whether or not the identification with Rome is correct, the application, I think, is is correct, that it's talking about any (coughs) ungodly empire or system that sets itself up against God's people. In what way do you think this vision challenges and encourages us in the 21st century? So maybe have a bit of a discussion in your groups, and then I'll call you back in a few minutes. I am going to whiz through the last little bit. And uh, then, we will, then we will have a break. So we're still in Vision 3. Um, we've covered the most controversial stuff, so uh, that's, that's all good. Um, and we now have... Oh, I, I say we've covered the most controversial stuff. We haven't, but I'm not going to spend much time on perhaps the most controversial part. Um, vision 3. So we're now going to talk about the second coming, the millennium, and judgment. And for those of you who know anything about the millennium will end up thinking, yeah, you definitely haven't covered the most controversial bit yet. Um, I'm basically just going to put my cards on the table and say, I think at the end of the day, I don't, think it, I don't think it makes a major difference to the way that you live your Christian life, which particular view of the millennium you hold, but I'll explain in a second. So the way chapters 90 to 20, we're still in the same vision, vision three work, is off the back of the destruction of Babylon. We have the king of kings and the lord of lords riding out victoriously from heaven with his armies, and he defeats the beast, the false prophet, and his armies. So by the way, the beast refers to the first beast, the false prophet refers to the second beast from chapter 13, and the armies obviously refer to the armies of the beast. And the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, which is the, the, the language that Revelation uses to refer to hell. Off the back of that, Satan ends up being captured and bound for a thousand years. 
and martyrs or those who've been beheaded for the sake of the, the gospel are raised from the dead and reign for a thousand years. Now, this is what's called the millennium. And so I'm basically just going to, in a minute, explain what the three broad views are. And then you can decide what you think the right option is based on your own reading of the Bible, because we will be here until tomorrow if we go into that. Um, And then finally, we get Satan ends up being loosed again, gathers a huge army and he's beaten and then thrown into the lake of fire. And then all of the dead end up being judged. So here are, I think, the, the three main views, not just on the millennium, but on the whole of this section. So ultimately, it does come down to which view of this a thousand years you hold. But depending on what view of the a thousand years you hold, you will read this section in three different ways, in three slightly different ways. So if you are what is called a premillennialist, which means you think that this is chronological. So you think chapter 19 refers to the second coming of Christ. Chapter 20 verses 1 to 6, therefore, must be after the second coming and must refer to a resurrection uh, where the saints reign on earth for a thousand years. And often this goes hand in hand with the idea of the saints reigning in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And after that, you then get final judgment and then you would get eternity new creation, and so on. So that's what's called premillennialism. Or you might hold what's called, so by the way, premillennial, because the, the, at the, the pre at the beginning refers to, does Jesus refer, return before the millennium or after the millennium? So premillennialism is the idea that Jesus refers, returns before this period of a thousand years that's described. And most of the time, premillennialists would take the a thousand years relatively literally to refer to an actual time of a thousand years, though some people might see it more symbolically of just a long time. You then have a view called postmillennialism, which broadly means Jesus re- returns post after the millennium. So they wouldn't, read, wouldn't necessarily read this chronologically. Um, and so they would say, well, basically, at some point in history, we enter into this period called the millennium, which is symbolic for a time of amazing evangelistic fruit. And things just go really well. The church doesn't end up being persecuted. And at the end of this period, Satan's released for a little bit, persecutes the church again. And then Jesus returns and final judgment happens. Yeah? And I've put in on your notes what I think is the most likely form of postmillennialism, if I were to go for this view, which is if you were to read Revelation as ultimately referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, and that, would, and that way of reading it would be to say chapter 19, when it talks about the white rider coming out of heaven, that's not talking about the second coming of Jesus. It's actually a picture of the victory of Jesus when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. And so people who read the book of Revelation in this way would say, well, Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem in the Gospels, which means in a sense, when Jerusalem was destroyed, it vindicated him. It showed he was right. And so if you're reading the book of Revelation like this, you might read chapter 19, not as a reference to the return of Jesus, but as a symbolic description of the fact that when Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, it marked, in some senses, it was a victory for Jesus and for the church. And so at that point, people who read the book like this would say that the millennium is actually referring to the period between 70 AD and the return of Jesus. Okay, so not literally a thousand years, but a period between 70 AD and the return of Jesus. And they'd say that during this time, Satan, in a sense, is bound, is restricted in a way that he wasn't before 70 AD. And then the last few verses of chapter 20 would be the final victory of Christ. They'd say the second coming is not described, but it must be in there somewhere. And then Jesus judges all of the nations. Kind of makes sense. Yeah, pre-millennialism, Jesus returns before the millennium. Post-millennialism, he returns after the millennium. And amillennialism, which is probably the dominant view in um, 
the kind of churches that are part of the, the group that CCM would be part of, which is the idea that chapter 19 refers to the second coming of Christ, but we don't always read Revelation chronologically, so that means that chapter 20 is a symbolic description of the whole of the church age. There's a sense in which Satan is bound because of the victory of Jesus at the cross. And so, they were, so it's called amillennialism. The word a means no millennium. So it's not that amillennialists believe that there isn't a millennium. They just say, well, the whole of the church age is the millennium. We are currently living in it. We have been raised with Christ. We experience blessing in our life. And we also experience evangelistic fruit. And then they'd see the, the second half of chapter 20 as a reference to the final victory of Christ. And so don't worry too much for the amillennial view. You're kind of jumping backwards and forwards and, and like, it's not chronological in that sense. You're reading Revelation 19 and 20 as referring to di- uh, different things, sometimes one thing happening before the other, even though it's written in another order. Does that broadly make sense? Yeah, okay. It's, it's hugely debated, can be quite confusing. And so I'll leave it at that. Um, in terms of describing the views, but what I'll say is, whichever of the views is correct, the following should be clear. Christ will return, okay? Whether that is described in chapter 19 or whether that's a picture of something else, it's very clear from the rest of the New Testament, Christ will return bodily, and he will defeat Satan. (coughs) Those who have died and suffered for the Lord will be vindicated and rewarded. And whatever this millennium is talking about, surely part of the application must be that those who have suffered for the sake of the gospel will be rewarded and God will judge all people. That's, that's absolutely true. I think whatever your reading of the millennium is. Can I ask a question? Yep, go for it. Because I'm not suffering too much, does that mean I won't be saved? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, just, just no, 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 that's, that, that's a good question. Um, so, to a certain extent, depending on your reading of the millennium, you might answer slightly different things to that. I think as an overall view... The Bible doesn't teach that um, those who aren't killed for the gospel can't end up going to heaven at all. The Bible does teach that if we follow Jesus, we will face opposition and suffering of some kind. But it doesn't say that that necessarily means being tortured or being put in prison. It just means that we will face opposition of some kind. Um, now, if you read this, the millennium as a literal description of people who have been killed for the gospel being raised from the dead, what you might end up saying is those who have suffered for the gospel in a particularly intense way will receive a specific kind of reward that perhaps the rest of us might not. If you read it more in an amillennial understanding where the whole of the church age is the millennium, you would probably say that those who are beheaded for the gospel um, are basically a symbolic way of talking about everyone who follows Jesus. Because everyone who follows Jesus, whether they literally die for the gospel or not, they have all died to themselves, because otherwise you, you can't be a believer without having died to yourself. So it kind of, the, the answer to the question kind of depends on which view you take, but the overarching New Testament answer is, if you don't die or be tortured or put in prison for the sake of the gospel, that doesn't mean you then don't inherit eternal life. It, but um, does that make sense? Yeah. Great. Okay. Five minutes and we're done. You can have another break and then we'll uh, do eschatology for the last like, half hour or 40 minutes. Um, we then get the, the climax of vision three, which interestingly isn't the climax of the whole book, is the description of the recreation of everything. And uh, you know what? I'm just going to read it out rather than explain it because I think in a sense it's partly self-explanatory and I think it's sometimes good to just read it. 
And so after all of this chaos and craziness and cities falling and so on, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's a slightly mixed passage. I think the first half, we'd agree, is all amazing. It's like, God's going to recreate the universe. He's, okay? The Christian hope is not about being taken out of creation. The Christian hope is about God restoring the whole of his creation. In Revelation, Christians are not primarily taken out of earth to go to heaven. That is kind of part of what happens to you when you die. You go to heaven or whatever you want to call it to be with Jesus. The hope that Revelation sets out is that heaven is going to come down to earth. God's dwelling place is going to be the same place that we dwell in. God's dwelling is going to be with man. And so there's this amazing vision. And then there's verse 8, which kind of feels like a real dampener. And in some senses it is, and I think in some senses it should shock us and move us to mission, to save people from that kind of eternity. But I think in the context of Revelation, I don't think this is a verse that is meant to dampen it. In fact, I think this is a verse that is meant to actually encourage. And that might sound really strange, but the way it works is this. This verse is telling us that nothing will ever come into new creation that could possibly bring sin or damage or death. And so I think, I think in the context of Revelation, I think this verse is saying, don't worry, it's not going to happen again. You ever kind of wondered the question, well, when we, when we get to heaven or new creation... Couldn't it just all happen again? Couldn't we end up eating the apple and, and like listening to Satan and rebelling against God and then, the, and then the fall happens again? And this verse tells us, no, new creation will be preserved from any kind of evil. There is no possibility of evil coming into God's new creation, which is glorious. But like I said, at the same time, it, I think it is an appropriate way of moving us to say, I want, us, I want people to be saved from that kind of eternity. We're going to finish now with vision four, which is, I, I think, just glorious. Revelation doesn't end with a description of new creation. And I hadn't appreciated this until relatively recently and listening to some teaching by Andrew Wilson. Revelation ends, it's almost like, in the way he describes it in his, in his sermon is, well, the first eight verses of Revelation 21 are about new creation. In a sense, it's almost like, yeah, look, here's the setting, new heavens, new earth, and so on. Here is the main actor. It's saying, he gives this illustration of 
being at a wedding recently where he says it was just it was glorious it was in, i think it was in the cotswolds somewhere somewhere really nice and it was just this amazing venue and he said he was looking around going oh my goodness this is such an amazing venue and he said if i'd gone to my friend or family member at that point who was getting married that day and said to him this is incredible like this venue is just amazing isn't it and just gone on and on and on and on and on about the venue he said at some point my friend would have said come let me show you the bride let me show you who all this day is actually about. And that's exactly what the angel says to John at the beginning of this, this vision. You, uh, so verse, chapter 21, verse 9, he says, Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And as you can see on your notes, it's structured in the same way that when John is shown the prostitute, Babylon. But this time... This is the most stunning, beautiful vision you could have. And again, it requires a lot of kind of looking through the Old Testament for cross-references. But we are given a description of Jerusalem, which represents the people of God in its full glory. It's a way of saying, look, this is what the church is going to be like in eternity. And one of, again, kind of very indebted to Andrew Wilson on this, one of the main ways that satan will try and get us in the present is to look at the faults of the church now rather than remind us of what the church will be in eternity and so we can look at all of the things where you think ah oh, we don't do this that efficiently or why aren't we doing more of that or what oh my goodness this person's just so annoying like how am i going to get on with them as a christian and we get obsessed with that and it's almost like god wants to say hey come let me show you the bride let me show you the glorious vision of the church in eternity the church is described in these two chapters as being a temple. It's the place where God's presence is going to dwell. It's described as the place where there's going to be healing for the nations. The church in eternity is breathtaking. It's absolutely glorious and it's worth giving our lives in order to fight that we would present that the church would be as big as it possibly ever could be in eternity. And so Revelation, the climax of Revelation is basically to say, so it kind of started with seven letters to seven churches saying keep on going be faithful persevere to the end repent from sin and where if you conquer this is what awaits you and it finishes with a picture of this is what a people who have conquered look like this is what awaits the church for the whole of eternity and it says i saw no temple in the city because the lord god almighty and the lamb were the temple it's going to be a glorious absolutely amazing eternity and we will be in a, in a in a sense we we are going to be on display the church is going to be displayed to the whole of angels and rulers and authorities and they will look at it and think wow look at what god has done look at the people that god has redeemed from every tribe and nation and people group it is glorious isn't god amazing and we are going to be presented as a bride to the lamb every just a side point to make just before we have a break and then we look at something slightly different those of us who are married here and those of us who are not married did you know that your marriage is not fundamentally about your marriage your wedding day was not fundamentally about you getting married to your wife or your you getting married to your husband your wedding day and your marriage are primarily signposts to this day and it's so important we understand that because if we make marriage 
and weddings primarily about, and, and, and if the way that we fight um, to preserve marriage between a man and a woman, lifelong commitment and so on, if it's primarily driven by we need to stand against the tide of culture and we need to stand against divorce culture and we need to stand against sexual promiscuity, those are all good fights to make. If we forget the big picture, we're going to have a, a lower view of marriage than we should. Marriage is a signpost. And the way that we honour a signpost, if you're going on a journey somewhere, you don't honour a signpost by setting up your tent in front of it and camping there. You honour the signpost by going to the destination. And so in the same way, whether you are married or not, all of us will be married to the Lamb. And also, at the end of the day, that's the wedding that matters. Whether you are married in this life or not, that is the wedding that we need to make our lives all about. So if you're married, make your marriage all about pointing towards that day. If you're single, and perhaps you even feel called to be single for the whole of your life, make your life about that wedding. That's what we are looking forward to. So there we go. That's kind of the whole of Revelation in not enough time to do it justice.